This episode of the LARB Radio Hour is brought to you in part by Columbia University Press, the publisher of Chili Pepper in China, a fascinating story of a potent plant's journey from the Americas to Asia and its piquant impact on Chinese culture, medicine, and cultural identity. Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Kate. And this week we're speaking with Otessa Moschweg, whose new novel is called Death in Her Hands, and it's a very gripping, intense story. It is, yeah. The way that I've, I've been trying to describe it to people, and because I'm recommending it, the yellow wallpaper plus Beckett plus like murder she wrote <laughs> as a, a combination. The book follows a woman named Vesta and her dog Charlie. And Vesta finds a mysterious note that seems to be about a murder of a woman named Magda. And she begins to pursue this murder or what she thinks is perhaps a murder or the source of the note that she has found. And things sort of unravel from there. I mean, pursue also, she she pursues it mentally, most of all. And that's... Yes. Uh, yeah, and that's, I think, why it's a, in, more innovative than just an episode of Murder, She Wrote. Absolutely. It, but yeah, I, I very much appreciated it. And we don't talk much, but the relationship between uh, Vesta and her dog, Charlie, to me as a dog lover, was was very touching. I agree. It was one of the best depictions of dog love. <laughs> I think I've ever read. It is a, a very touching relationship in the book. All right, let's hear the interview. Let's do it. We have Otessa Moshveg with us today. Otessa is a fiction writer. She's the author of the novella McGlue in a short story collection called Homesick for Another World. Her stories have appeared in the Paris Review, The New Yorker, and Granta, among other publications. Eileen was her first novel, and it was shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Man Booker Prize. She is also the author of My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which was her second novel. She has a new book out, a new novel. It is called Death in Her Hands. Thank you so much for joining us, Otessa. Thanks for having me. So, Atessa, I'm wondering, since your last two novels have kind of featured characters that are in isolation, I wonder if you have started both these books with the idea of a constraint of limiting the possible action of the novel, or if the stories have come to you kind of organically on their own. I wonder if you could talk about how you've come up with the actions of your last two books. Well, I guess I could answer it both ways in hindsight, because it's really hard to separate what is a willful decision and what is necessarily who you are and what you're doing. I'm someone who definitely has been writing about like interior monologue aligned with narrative plot in novels. So having characters alone in rooms has been sort of a natural environment. It's like natural habitat in a lot of ways. 
I don't really remember making a decision to write Death in Her Hands as a book about an isolated character. It just was who the voice was from the moment she started dictating things in my mind. And yeah, I just followed her directions, really. And she seemed to be a character who wanted to talk about being isolated because she was lonely and had been isolated her whole life. So that was just intrinsically part of who she was. And it was probably, you know, also intrinsically part of who I am, which is why I write about these people who are alone at home with their thoughts. I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about loneliness because the way that the main character in Death in Her Hands sort of deals with her loneliness is that voices begin to proliferate. Mm -hmm. Characters come to her. She becomes involved with them in a very intimate way. And in some ways, the ways that she deals with her loneliness is that she starts to write it down. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Is that something that you think about in terms of your writing, that that's one of the ways in which one deals with a sort of constant state of loneliness, of feeling kind of alone, that characters at least accompany you? Maybe someone would say that about me once I'm dead. Like, (laughs) she was a lonely woman, and she needed... And the only people who could stand her were her characters. But that's not true. And I don't feel particularly lonely. I mean, I don't write out of loneliness. Mm -hmm. I write out of desire. And maybe part of it is the desire to connect. So it isn't that Mm -hmm. I'm writing out of a negative space, but I'm writing toward a positive space, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. But I do like writing about lonely people because they appeal to me in their hypersensitivity. And when you put Mm -hmm. a person in isolation, their thoughts bounce off the walls and get reflected back to them in interesting ways. I mean, if you want to drive someone totally insane, lock them in a room, you know? It's like uh, the simplest form of torture to be away from other human beings and forced to confront your own often disturbed mind, whether it was disturbed when it went in and the door got locked or, or the door locked and you became disturbed. Either way, it takes incredible like self-discipline and spiritual awareness and emotional maturity lightheartedness, depth, focus. I mean, being in isolation and not going crazy is a lot of work. And I like the work that it entails. I like the work when it fails as well. And making Vesta a character who's trying to solve a mystery about someone who she doesn't know. And a mystery that might not even actually exist as a mystery. It might just be some words on a piece of paper, intangible. I wanted to explore her psyche and her effort toward what was intangible, ineffable, impossible through 
the mundane quotidian details of the world around her because that was essentially all that she's been left with having been a woman now in her 70s who had never allowed herself to grow so this is mm -hmm. like her chance to now confront her past through her investigation of something that is beyond her like this mystery with magda this mystery with magda is beyond her it's beyond the small world the small safe isolated bubble that she has filled with her small self and now she's sort of sticking an arm out and seeing that there's more out there to be discovered it's like the most primal gesture to reach out and mm -hmm. to me it really seemed important for her at this moment to get out whereas she spent her whole life in so you know one way is to literally leave the house <laughs> and like mm -hmm. so part of the story was a reason for her to leave and go looking for something and also a way to open her mind and in opening her mind she finds the space to have perspective on her past in her marriage in her life choices in her relationship with herself and that's all invisible to i mean you you want to like make a movie about that like <laughs> that's happening on the inside and i think why i write about things that are so much happening on the inside is that most things seem to be happening on the inside in the course of a human life like i would say mm. 95% i mean i don't know maybe that's not true but it just seems like <laughs> the way that we grow is not something that happens to us it's something that happens inside us we're not made to grow we grow in response so i was interested yeah. in what could finally make this character grow and how she could find herself in the last moments of her life really when reality starts to become entangled in her imagination. You know, she finds a note in the woods that alerts her to the dead body of a person named Magda. That's all we ever know tangibly of Magda. And she creates, you know, the story of what may have happened to Magda. But something you do so artfully in the book is that we're never sure what is truly happening and what's kind of part of her imagination or how she's interpreting the world you know things start to seem to happen that are eerie but then it's it's unclear if she's imagining all of it in some ways you know the book becomes very poetic and in a way that almost reminded me of the cheever story the swimmer where kind of how much is truly happening in the outside world is unclear and how much is kind of becoming just all fantastical so when you're writing like that and it becomes a little ambiguous, do you know what is real and what's not? Or do you just give yourself over to the perceptions of your character, Vesta? For this book, I stayed with Vesta. I didn't feel like I needed to be the author who 
understood everything perfectly because I wanted to be really close to my character. I also wrote this book in a specific way with that in mind. I didn't plan this novel. This novel began in response to that note that you mentioned. And that note was something that just felt like it had been delivered to me psychically. And I didn't even find it immediately all that interesting. But I got it and I began to respond to it through a character who became Vesta. And I decided that what was interesting about Vesta was how her mind worked to me in its analysis of what was around her and its analysis of the note. So she was, even before we know her, she's a reader and a thinker. And, you know, she reads the note the same time we do, basically. There's something about her mind that to me seemed impossible to capture without sounding phony or like a pretend version of this woman, unless I wrote the book in a specific way. And I can't really decipher my instincts about it, but in hindsight, I can say that I think it worked to keep her in a kind of mind space that was stuck in the present and limited in a way. So basically what I did was I wrote down the note that she finds, and then I began narrating the book through Vesta, and I wrote a thousand words a day and never read what I had written the day before. And I said, I'll do this until I finish a novel. And I didn't know what novel I was writing. So in that sense, it sort of put me in the same position of Vesta. Like I knew there was going to be an end to this kind of consciousness. And I knew that part of what was going to happen was that she was going to explore her own response to the note. And other than that, I was just in, in the day with Vesta every day. What's she thinking? What's she doing now? Not so much trying to write this carefully crafted object in its totality where I'm constantly revising and going back to the beginning and keeping track in this very fastidious way. I I wanted the voice and the logic of the voice to feel, I don't want to say loose, but there is something like a little bit hallucinatory about its lucidity. And Mm -hmm. it couldn't be overwrought. Like that would destroy it. So I just tried to stay in the present as much as I possibly could. You know, I think she comes from a long tradition of hypersensitive literary characters. So there was a point when I was reading it and I was like, oh, this is what the yellow wallpaper protagonist would have been like 40 years later after she had finally gotten out of that marriage. But that what hypersensitives do is that they look for patterns, Mm -hmm. but they're not sure if those patterns are real. They just maybe see them. And so there's both a sense of like construction of pattern making and a looseness of association. Mm -hmm. And Vesta really has sort of both of those traits where she's Mm -hmm. loose enough to sort of open herself up to the patterns in the world and also 
sensitive enough to maybe see patterns that aren't really there. Um, yeah, I, I like that. So it's also interesting to hear you say that this isn't a carefully constructed novel because, my God, that seems so difficult to do without careful attention to detail. <laughs> to me, it seems almost impossible, but, you know, I didn't write the book, so I guess I get off easy. Well, uh, I think the stress was on constructed. There was a lot of fluidity in the writing because the voice was something that was building upon itself something that I couldn't have planned for the ways that it moved. One of the other things that I really liked about this book, and you actually just said the word in your previous answer, but this thing about mind space. So Vesta, there are times when she thinks about her mind space as being invaded or shared. Sometimes she can't tell the difference. Sometimes with her ex-husband, who is now dead. Sometimes with her dog. And other people sort of invade this mind space. It also sounds kind of like you and she shared a mind space for a while. Yeah, I mean, I think she let me into her mind space. Mm -hmm. Or she let me hear it and see it and see her. I don't know if she ever really got into my mind space, though. Oh, interesting. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Otessa Moshveg, author of Death in Her Hands. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Juli Delgado Lopera on the line with us today. Juli's new book is called Fiebre Tropical. It's a novel, but Juli is here to recommend a book for us. Huli, what book are you going to recommend? Hi, Medaya. Well, as I was sitting with this, I thought about The House of Impossible Beauties by Joseph Cacera, which is a contemporary novel. And I am recommending this book because I love it. And it's a beautiful study on voice. I okay. love really voicey novels. And this book takes us to 1980s ballroom scene in New York City. And the language is just so lovely. It just pops a lot. Every single time I would put the book down, I could feel the characters talking in my head. Oh, that's and the they're best. They're so loud and they're so wonderful. And I also just know Joseph Casera and love his work. And he's just like really thoughtful. So this book is beautiful. And it's also a really good recommendation to take you out of this world and into another world mm -hmm. where things are different. How did you discover this book? How did you come to it? I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, it's probably because I follow all things queer history, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to maybe ball scene, voguing, and drag. And Joseph probably popped up when I was looking into this. What is beautiful about it is that it's from like the Puerto Rican side um, during the 1980s. So it's just really beautiful. The research is just beautifully done, and the characters are loud. They have a lot to say. The details are gorgeous. So that sounds yeah. great. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Yeah. It's The House of Impossible Beauties and the writer is Joseph Casera. Perfect. Thank you so much. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Otessa Moshveg. Some 
think she does、um, because she has so little. She has a name of this woman who you know is said to be dead, Magda, and something she has to do is figure out who Magda could have been, and、um, uh-huh. she uses an internet guide. For mystery writing to kind of construct the character of Magda and construct the character of the person who may have left the note, and to make the whole world in in a way that really does mirror the work of any writer, you know, is、mm-hmm. it, figuring out who who these people are. And through her process, we're watching, you know, the process, you know, by proxy, your process of creating these characters, and really watching them kind of come alive, and her thinking of them, and I guess. I'm kind of hearing that you know your writing is mostly voice driven. You're instructed by a voice that you tap into, and is that the way you kind of find characters? Do you ever do the kind of work that Vesta does, where she plots out possibly who these people are and just associates and writes down? You know, she writes down notes about them. Is do you ever do that kind of work when you're writing novels? Oh yeah, absolutely. I do a lot of that. When I'm writing novels, but I didn't do it for this novel. <laughs> so normally, you would kind of, you know, do work that's not necessarily doesn't make its way into the book of okay, like here's who these people are and here's how I write them, and then start writing them as opposed to just figuring it out as you're going along. Yeah, I mean, there's some things that I plan and investigate and develop before I write a word, and there are some things that I mean. Every time you write a novel, you are you come to some sort of impasse and have to think on your feet, right? So there are things that I always have to do on the spot, and some of that, you know. So I might not do that in the novel, but I'm doing it next to the novel while developing, you know, some new character or something in the middle of the process. So. It、happens before and it happens after. It happens between.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that I, you know, was interested in in this novel, and is this one of the things that you maybe planned beforehand, is the investigation of fascism. I don't know. I'm not sure if investigation is quite the right term, but that there are there's a fascist, sometimes overt threat that comes into the book. The、uh-huh. Uh, Vesta's husband is German. There's times when she obliquely mentions sort of Nazis and Hitler, but she moves quickly along. And Walter also doesn't like to to touch upon the subject. And then there's a part in which she starts to think about the policemen that she comes across as the sort of main villain in her mystery story, as potentially the killer of. Magda,、uh-huh. I don't, I don't think that's giving anything away. No, is fascism something that you've been thinking? I mean, you know, I think it's probably been on all of our minds lately. But you wrote this book presumably a while ago. Is that something that you've been thinking about, or that you think about constantly? And perhaps fascism isn't the word, but maybe that's too overtly or explicitly political. It's more about power. But is that something that you think about and that you try to deal with in the book? Yeah.、Mm-hmm. Yes. Because people don't suffer the consequences of being trapped and isolated, because they think it's a really good idea. There's usually some sort of force that either persuades or forces them to do so. 
I mean, if Vesta is 72, she was born in, let's say, the 40s. That's a very different mindset for a woman than one who was born in the year 2004, you know, or whatever, however old you are. Your, your experience is in, in, inextricably influenced by the culture of politics that in the society that you live in, obviously. So, mm -hmm. you know, she was in, I think Vesta's parents were immigrants. Yeah, it seems like they that they escaped before the war. They kind of made it just yeah. in time. And then Walter's history is questionable. Mm -hmm. um, he's definitely macho, intellectual, um, very, very controlling, not loyal, and very manipulative. And I, you know, there's a reason that Vesta was interested in being with him mm. and how she, how there's an, you know, if she's, she's running the show, she's telling her story. So I actually think that, you know, her, her revelations to herself about what kind of man Walter really was isn't so much like, oh, I married an asshole. It's like, why did I stay married to an asshole and how do I get free? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if any of this is a good answer to your question, which is, I think, a really good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think about fascism, for lack of a, of a better word, a lot. I, I think a lot of things can be fascistic, not just abusive husbands and police you know we can be fascistic with each other to ourselves there's government isn't you know is maybe mm -hmm. the the highest form but there's also personal forms of fascism down to you know the way that you think you deserve to feed yourself or sleep you know where mm -hmm. do where do our ideas about ourselves ourselves come from did you feel like you came to any other understandings of, you know, the uh, something I think about Vesta is that, right, she's an older woman um, who doesn't seem to fit anymore in, in as much as she kind of looks down maybe at the place where she lives and the people, she lives in a small town, um, the people that she lives around, it, it also seems that, you know, she's, at her age, she's kind of done for, you know, there's nothing mm -hmm. left for her. And, and so that's a part of her isolation. You know, what was it like for you to inhabit that position and that vantage of a, of a woman who's just, you know, no longer useful to anyone? Felt pretty natural. <laughs> um, <laughs> it wasn't a great leap of the imagination, you know, as someone who has kind of, Someone who opted out, I mean, I like, there, there, was, there was actually some relief in inhabiting Vesta as a character. Someone who had taken such little responsibility for herself. There, I mean, I don't say that in a judgmental way. I have great compassion for her as a person. But I certainly did not experience what she experienced in allowing herself to drift 
I've always felt an enormous amount of pressure to become who I am, not to accept what someone else is telling me to do and to do it as ineffectively with as little passion as possible. I mean, okay, I am being judgmental now, but there's there like when you work really hard and then you take on the mindset of someone who hasn't worked very hard, who hasn't really struggled with herself and in, in her consciousness, nor has she fought back against the real external um, forces of conflict in her life. Like it can feel like a relief to, to just like put, put your head down and be like, okay, I'll just be here and just uh, look out the window and plan my day and do these things and feel no responsibility for anything. Maybe responsibility to feed myself and feed my dog and walk my dog. And, you know, I think that like, that's where the note finds Vesta is at the end of that, like at the end of that sense of meaninglessness about her life, where she has just simply accepted it and has tried to find the easiest place basically to die alone. And this note is like, gives her a reason to, to live like to actually live in an active way and to examine herself and her past in a way that she would never have the energy or inclination to do so. I mean, and I think, you know, like not to stretch it too much because it's going to sound ridiculous, but there is something about art that I think helps us break out of those numb, stupid zones that we can all find ourselves in. And for Vesta, I think finding that note was like encountering a piece of art, like an inspiring piece of artwork, you know, like mm. it's uh, evidence of life, you know, evidence that someone made something, that they wanted you to see it. That's so meaningful, you know, Where, yep. whereas, you know, we, we, we try so hard to fit in, to not cause trouble. Well, here comes someone who actually wants to cause trouble because he cares. Now that you mention it, I think Vesta's relationship to art is actually really interesting because it seems like it had, it had been a force of oppression prior to the note that it had been, you know, that she, that her husband wanted to go to museums and he would explain stuff to her and he would always guess the end of the mystery show that they were watching or the mystery movie that they were watching, that art had been completely like inaccessible for her because it had been through, it had always been necessitated through the lens of this man mm -hmm. who had always explained it to her. And it just, it, it never occurred to me that the note is a piece of art that she finds on her own, right? That nobody guides her there. Nobody explains it to her it isn't institutionalized in some capacity. It's just out mm -hmm. in the forest, essentially. So it's a very, I mean, some, so in some ways you're, you're talking about a very particular kind of artistic experience or artistic interaction 
mm-hmm. um, that I think very few of us really have, where it's not not mediated, not not presented by some institution or some expert. It's just, well, she encounters a rare thing, is, 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 I think, sort of what I'm saying. Yeah, you, you could look at it that way, but I would also argue maybe the opposite, that we mm. encountered those things constantly. Mm-hmm. It's just that sometimes we are so conditioned not to see art unless it's being presented in a certain frame by a certain entity. I mean, people, art, I mean, how do you define art? It was, I don't know. I mean, I think we can probably be more open about it at this point. Yeah. I also think, you know, the what you mentioned before is that she has the time. Her life is empty enough to take this note and, and, and make it so all-consuming because it, it kind of fills the space, you know, and mm-hmm. then that's what leads her to create with it is that she doesn't, she doesn't have anything else taking her away from it. And I, this may also be too personal, but I, I just wonder having now gone through this time of, you know, where everyone has been in isolation and been home and had, had maybe more in, in common with Vesta, you know, in, in some sense than previously, um, having just gone through the, stay-at-home orders, has your understanding of the state of kind of just being by yourself with without much, has that deepened or changed at all? Or have, have you had thoughts as you see other people, you know, having to, to live through that? Yeah, I mean, it's been a real trip, I think, for everyone I've been talking to, the, the isolation and um, the processing of the information in especially in the manner that it comes to us is particularly weird. I mean, my experience has been, has been really positive in a lot of ways. I mean, and I don't think that my complaints are really worth sharing anyway, but the, on a positive note, like I think that I have sort of detached from a lot of things that I didn't know I didn't need. Like, I don't really need to go lots of places. Like, I don't really need to buy stuff. Like, I don't really need to make myself available to people who don't love me. You know, things like that. Like, there are a lot of good reasons to stay home. And I think as, as someone who has enjoyed staying home, I found that like the slowing downness of all of this has been really beautiful and has allowed me to consider things far more deeply than I would have otherwise. Like I was supposed to spend this time on a book tour, mm-hmm. you know, interfacing with people and getting on planes and sleeping in hotels and eating, you know, food from the convenience store. And in, I mean, one thing that I've realized is how poorly I take care of myself when I'm out in the world and how life is actually a pleasure if I can take the time to do things like take a bath or plant a seed in my garden. Like, I would have never taken the time 
to do that. I wouldn't, I, I've, I've been living like a maniac. I mean, and I am in, in some ways still living like a maniac. Like I'm working on like 10 things and I'm reading like a book every two days, but great. It, it feels great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it feels great. And, and also like, I don't know, I think spending time alone makes you more honest with other people. I think that's really important for if, if we want, if we want to save ourselves from what feels like, you know, it's either a revolution or it's an apocalypse. I mean, I guess maybe that's what it always feels like, but trying to stay hopeful. All right. I, Sorry, go ahead, Atessa. I was just going to say that a dog, like every, like if I had to give, if I had a dog to give to every human on earth, like I would, to have a dog is, is such a blessing and a delight. Like I don't know what I would do without my dog, who actually named Walter. Oh, really? Having, having completely forgotten that I had named Vesta's her, deceased husband Walter <laughs> I guess I just like the name oh it is a, it is a good name for a dog I think yeah um, so he's he's very devoted oh um, very I, that is very nice I also thought that this was I mean I just think I mean maybe it's just me maybe there's many books in which the relationship between a person and a dog is so intimately detailed but um it really felt like, I don't know if I've read something like that before where I was like, oh yeah, I think about this. I think about whether mm. sometimes if I'm enough for my dog, <laughs> you know, I mean, I have a mm-hmm. partner, so if she's bored of me, she can move on. But um, it just felt like a, 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 also the sort of flip side of the kind of, the kind of relationships that Vesta had had in the past mm-hmm. in which there was, there wasn't love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's what makes the ending so riveting and so upsetting is that, and, and beautiful too, and, and kind of symbolic, but God, like, that's just, it was, I was, that's what was so moving about the ending, but. Mm-mm. Oh, Tessa, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Otessa Moshfeg. Her new book is called Death in Her Hands. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 